millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show, Morning a Monarch. Britain's Queen Elizabeth is laid to rest after an historic state funeral in London. World leaders, including the Taoiseach, paid their respects. It brings to mind in many respects the attachment, the connection between the British people of different generations and Queen Elizabeth. It's quite an extraordinary thing to, to see at first hand. And I'm live in London tonight where after the state funeral, the UK considers a new monarch and a new era. Here at home, a new report on Ireland's energy security and how to prevent future supply shocks in the market here. This would be a shipment which would be there to provide a strategic storage. We wouldn't be the only country doing that. Other countries are looking at it. And a new survey says binge drinking is on the rise here. Is the pandemic to blame for more home drinking? Join the conversation online with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. Good evening. Britain's Queen Elizabeth has been laid to rest in a private burial service at Windsor Castle after a day of public commemoration at a state funeral in London. Earlier, her funeral service was told Queen Elizabeth had touched a multitude of lives. It followed over a week of mourning and four days of lying in state. Tonight's private burial service followed a day of ceremony and pageantry which drew hundreds of thousands of mourners onto the streets of London to pay their respects. I'm so proud to be British and she was a queen, but she was queen of the world. So, yeah, I just wanted to be part of history. And uh, at my age, I've never done that. And I'm so, I'm so pleased I've done it, and I will do it again. We went to Lion in State on Friday, and um, we queued for 12 and a half hours, all of us, including this one. Um, but no, we did really well. Bit of a struggle at the end. But, um, Absolutely amazing. We're trying to celebrate our queen, somebody that has given a lot, all his, all our life and services. So we're just trying to celebrate her in a very, in our own little way, by coming out at least to appreciate her for the last time. Let's go live to London first tonight and join our news correspondent Richard Chambers, who's in Westminster Forest. Richard, an historic day there. Yeah, absolutely, Gavin. It has been a day of ceremony and pageantry, years in the planning. A lot of people have read about Operation London Bridge and all of the planning around how the Queen's death would eventually be announced. That, of course, has come to pass. And then uh, the 10 days of public mourning leading up to today's state funeral, which was uh, perhaps one of the biggest gatherings of world leaders we've seen in the modern era, as well as one of the biggest security operations too. Tens of thousands of police personnel, as well as uh, British Armed Forces members 
officers were here to make sure that everything passed off without incident. Uh, and now the Queen uh, has been laid to rest in Windsor Castle this evening uh, in a private ceremony attended by the royal family after what was a very, very public outpouring of grief with hundreds of thousands of Britons and people from around the world gathering here in London to watch uh, a procession unlike any other. 142 members of the Royal Navy uh, pulling the gun carriage, which has been used in every royal state funeral uh, since that of Queen Victoria when the horses bolted off and the sailors had to grab the ropes and pick up the slack quite literally uh, at that time. Uh, really, everywhere there was reminders of Britain's role in empire uh, and its dominions around the world. And that comes with complications too, and that is what's something which is going to be considered a lot, I think, in the years to come. Um, Richard, you, before you were um, on the balconies of Battersea, then before you went to Westminster this evening, I know you spent some time along the Thames embankment, and there were a few people there who weren't as caught up in the pomp and ceremony who were still trying to go about their days. Yeah, I think so, Gavin. There was a lot of people. London is a global city. You will have people of loads of different persuasions, loads of people who are fans of the monarchy, loads of people who are Republicans here and British, uh, and other people who are just tourists or people who aren't British and living in the city and passing by. For a lot of people, it was a curiosity. curiosity. A lot of people were here to take pictures of the global media here. A lot of people passing comments on whether or not they thought it was worth uh, the massive expense of millions and millions of pounds to stage something like this, even stopping flights in and out of Heathrow Airport for a time. Uh, so it is something which has, uh, despite what you might see in the British media, there is a variance of opinions here. Uh, on uh, the monarchy here in Britain. And that is something which I suppose is a conversation uh, which uh, has been perhaps played down, I think, in the British media uh, in recent days for understandable purposes at a time of national mourning. But it is something which you might see more of uh, as people come to terms in Britain uh, with the reign of King Charles III. And of course, although in essence only a British event, in practice also a world event because of the number of global leaders and heads of state and governments who were there in attendance today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you mentioned, you know, you've 500 world leaders and global dignitaries uh, taking part in the service at Westminster Abbey behind me over across the Thames. Uh, and, you know, of course, Ireland represented by President Michael D. Higgins and Taoiseach Michal Martin. Joe Biden was here. Uh, Emmanuel Macron was here. And a whole host of other European royal families, of course, connected through blood with the British royal family, as well as uh, leaders from around the world. But this is a global event. There are 14 countries outside of the United Kingdom where the British monarch is the head of state. That is a question which is going to come more and more to the fore in the time ahead. You have countries like Jamaica, like Antigua and Barbuda, which say, we want to become republics. We don't want the British monarch as our head of state anymore. And you have other uh, larger countries like Australia and New Zealand, where political leaders, they say they are more inclined to go down the route of a republic. That, though, a conversation in their terms for another day, something not likely to be seen for a number of years. But also the legacy of empire is something which people are being reminded of. Queen Elizabeth came to the throne uh, in the 1950s. The Mau Mau massacre happened while she was the monarch. Uh, she, uh, her, uh, she was buried uh, today in um, Windsor Castle. The imperial state crown uh, lifted off her coffin. It emblazoned with a number of different jewels, some taken from South Africa, including uh, the Cullinan diamond, the largest ever clean-cut diamond. South Africans want that diamond back. The plunder of empire also coming into conversations as a result of the pomp and the ceremony around the state funeral here in Britain. And that is why this is a very much a global event. Uh, there are hundreds of millions of people around the world who will have watched this. Some figures of about 4 billion circulating for people watching it live. Those sort of numbers, traditionally, you can take them as 
pure bunkum. They are plucked out of thin air, really, for these sort of things. But this is a global event, and it is one that will echo throughout the ages. Richard Chambers, our news correspondent in London, thank you very much for joining us on the Tonight Show this evening. Now, here in studio, I'm joined by the Green Party Minister of State, Senator Pippa Hackett, Sinn Féin TD and spokesperson on Enterprise, Louise O'Reilly, Independent.ie Ireland editor, Fionnán Sheehan, and consumer journalist, Sinead Ryan. And Sinead, I-, I will start with you, first of all, because as well as being a consumer journalist, you have also written extensively about the affairs of the royal family for many years. There might be a sense that although people have parked the conversation because it would seem maybe inappropriate or disrespectful to have it before the Queen had been buried, that Elizabeth might have been a singular person that was holding what might be seen by many people as a decrepit institution together and that it really doesn't have a purpose in the 21st century. Having covered it for so long, what do you think? Well, monarchy of itself is, of course, an anachronism. I I mean, it's just faintly ridiculous when you think about it. That said, here it is a thousand years later, uh, and you've seen from Richard's report there, uh, hundreds of thousands of people filing past, 500 world leaders. Uh, President Biden got relegated to the 14th row. uh, and, And people... People still want to be part of the Commonwealth. Yes, there are kind of fighting factions who, who want their independence and that, that's fine and they'll probably get it. Uh, but you, you can't deny that there is a deep-seated respect and love and regard for in Britain um, and indeed in the Commonwealth countries for the Queen. Now, whether that translates to uh, Charles III and onwards to William and onwards to George and and whoever comes after it remains to be seen. And there was something very, very special and unique about the Queen herself. Uh, Possibly the way she conducted herself, which is so unlike the way politicians do, for instance. So there was no self-aggrandizement. It wasn't about her opinion. It was, you know, she, she famously said, where do you want me to stand? What do you want me to do? Her presence preceded her, if if you know what I mean. So the the poll after poll in the UK that has ever been done uh, has an overwhelming uh, support for the monarchy. So I expect for the time being, certainly for the next while, it it will remain and pertain, even if to some of us it looks a bit more like the celebrity soap opera that we've come to know and love and hate. Uh, so I, I think fine for the time being. There, nobody does pageantry on these occasions quite like them. And um, and people tuned into the spectacle. Uh, Pippa Hackett, the, the pageantry is an interesting point to it, really, because often a lot of people around the world are tuning in, not necessarily out of any major fondness for the United Kingdom or for the institution at state, but they're tuning in for a bit of a show. And it does make you wonder whether a lot of the global affection is superficial because they like the costumes and they like the pageantry, but they're not all that wild about the people or the institution. There might be a certain element of that, um, but I think I think on the whole, the Queen herself was was very fondly regarded. Um, and I know there's a lot, a very vast spectrum of views about the monarchy, um, but for me, I think she was very much um, a, a country woman. You know, very much ingrained in in farming, um, had a love of of um, agriculture. You know, she was passionate about breeding cattle, breeding thoroughbreds, as we know. And there are a lot of things that even Irish people can resonate quite closely with. And certainly, when she visited here in 2011, you know, she visited the Irish National Stud. She had that wonderful visit to the um, Cork English Market in Cork. Um, and I think, you know, nobody can deny that her visit there certainly built bridges between Ireland and, and Britain. And I think she'll be fondly, you know, fondly missed. Um, but I can take the point about the pageantry and as, uh, you know, nobody does do it quite like the British. But um, I think there's, I think it's a bit deeper than that. Um, Louise O'Reilly, be honest, did you watch any of today's events? Would it be your cup of tea? 
Um, well, I was I was busy for the day, so I didn't get to watch any of the events. Uh, to be fair, I um, had it been at a weekend though. Had it been like another? Uh, I'm sure. I, I think had I been at home, I wouldn't have been able to avoid it. From what people are saying, is that the coverage was was fairly blanket, and and you know, I mean, people wanted to see that as well because you know you're going to see the. Um, the, the full display, the pageantry and, and all that. And obviously people are interested in that. I think it was it was also nice um, that there was a private ceremony that, that ended it because I was quite conscious watching that, you know, the family had, had lost their mum or their grandmother, or their auntie, whatever, and, and they're grieving in public and then they got a chance as a family. So I, I think that was probably a fitting uh, end to the day. Which, which is very fair and a to totally appropriate comment, but there'd be many people who might never have thought they'd hear the day where a Sinn Féin spokesperson or a front bench or somebody aspires to be part of a Republican government who would be thinking about the welfare of the family first and foremost above the institution of the monarchy. I think that those people are people that wouldn't have been paying attention to what's been happening over the last uh, 20 years. I think, you know, it's quite possible to be a Republican, as I am, um, I'm not a massive fan of the monarchy and that wouldn't surprise anybody, but I am also uh, a daughter. I'm also a mother and a grandmother. So it's quite possible that I will look and, and see the, 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 the human side of that. I think it's quite appropriate as well. Um, Fiona Sheehan, I heard an argument before yesterday, I think it's the only cogent argument I've ever heard in favour of the idea of monarchies in general, which is that if you have to have somebody who's going to be the head of state as distinct to a head of government, that maybe there's a, there's a good case that you just decide, right, this family is going to provide the head of government. You're not going to have an elective head of state like we have here. And it bypasses the idea of having to elect them and having this idea that when they're in office, not everyone wants them to be there. That if you just have a monarchy, it's a settled question. You already know who the head of state's going to be and that just parks that whole question. Any merit to that? I mean, like a dictatorship? A hereditary dictatorship. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, a benign one where you have, you Absolutely know, elective government. quite well. fancy that yeah. for our own system where... We have a head of state and everybody else in the country over the age of 30 is second in line to the throne because any one of us can can run for the presidency and, and, and attain that. I mean, you, you today, I mean, to be fair to the British, she got a great send off, as we'd say, in, in Ireland. It was a, it was a fabulous uh, occasion. And when you, you look at the... Uh, the rest of the family who, who remain, I mean, they, they seem as dysfunctional as, as, as many other families. Uh, there was aspects of today. <laughs> That's your way of saying that they're just like us. They're there. <laughs> well, look, very often we, we, we observe them as kind of a posher version of EastEnders, really. You know, uh, if, if it was an element of the throwback today to a bygone era, if you go back to Ireland of the, the 40s, 50s and 60s, there tend to be a far more pro-royalist element within, within people still uh, very much felt a, an attachment to to royalty, probably the, the troubles and, and the period from the, the 70s to the 90s probably probably changed all that. It's interesting for us to observe because we do have, in effect, uh, about a million people uh, on on the island who would regard their head of state as, as having passed away in the past 10 days and how we reflect their identity into the future. If we are to go down a, a, a unity route, it would be quite interesting. I mean, would we, for example, would we, uh, as a united Ireland, join the Commonwealth uh, to reflect that, that connection that the unionist community have uh, with, with the United uh, Kingdom? What sort of relationship would we have with the, with the royal family uh, going in, into the future? So they are still very much... a. Uh, an important, uh, it's an important relationship for, for our country to have. Well, let me go back to Louise on that idea of the Commonwealth, because often uh, when you hear unionists replying to this idea that maybe United Ireland would join the Commonwealth, they will say, well, no one has ever asked us whether we'd have any interest in that or not, and they don't seem that it would be all that important to them. 
Yeah, I'm thinking of other countries that have left the Commonwealth and I don't see any of them queuing up to get back uh, to get back into it. But um, I suppose... But it's rather than two, though, other than just being a sort of an umbrella group where you don't have anything really binding and you just have some discussions with other countries in the same language once a couple of years and that's about it. Well, that sounds now like a fairly pointless arrangement, so I don't know why, you know, if, if that is indeed what it is. But I think, you know, Fionn makes the point about the, the conversation that's happening and, and how that's going to, to move on, and it will. Um, but that, that conversation needs to be had with everyone. So, like, on the 1st of October, Ireland's future are going to host a, a major conversation uh, in the, the Three Arena, and that will give people an opportunity to have a discussion about the future of Ireland, about where they see it, um, about unity and about what the, the possibility that that could present. And also, if people have concerns, if they have fears, well, then there needs to be a table where they can bring that. So when we in Sinn Féin talk about the need for a citizens' assembly, that's an appropriate place for those conversations to take place. That's an appropriate space to have those conversations where people have concerns. And, you know, we'll have, we'll have to have loads of conversations. So we won't have a conversation about the Commonwealth. Well, then let's, you know, pull up a chair and let's sit people down and have that conversation if that's what they want. Now, I may be the person at the table who is arguing against uh, um, joining the Commonwealth, but that doesn't matter. I'm entitled to my view and other people are. They have to be heard, they have to be listened to and we need to have uh, an inclusive conversation, as inclusive a conversation as possible. Citizens' Assembly on Unity, I think that's a really, really important thing. I think that is the exact place where that conversation can and should take place. Pippa Hackett, is the government kicking that, all of this question into the long glass and, and avoiding the, the, the preparations that need to be done for Unity for the sake of having this shared island unit where no one really seems to be all that clear as to what its purpose is? I don't think so. I mean, I think the shared island unit has a has a real um, you know a, a really important role to play, especially Which when is we not. have. A, well, I, For well, those I, who don't I think. Understand what well, it's well, I think in, in terms of sharing those those issues that that affect both north and south, and that array, ranges from a whole host of things, from environmental issues um, through you know to, to a whole a whole array of issues. I mean, I think while the situation in in Northern Ireland and the Assembly is still totally dysfunctional and not functioning and not coming together as it should, I think it's premature to be talking about um, uh, United Ireland. And sh uh, So I think in, in, you in the interim... You can Northern Ireland is not a functional political entity, that there's never been a more appropriate time to discuss whether... You could, but I don't think it's going to, to, to land so well. And But I mean, I would agree with, with, with Louise in terms of we do have to listen to the, the, the broad views that are there. And I think at some point we will be at that, but I just don't think it is there at the moment. Uh, Sinead Ryan, how big is Charles's... Uh, job in front of him now because obviously he's got enormous shoes to fill in a metaphorical sense, obviously mm. not in the literal sense, uh, but he's not an unknown quantity in the way that a lot of monarchs are and he's inheriting the job at a time when a lot of his, his realms want to break away and in fact his union itself might be disintegrating. It is a huge job of work he's got in front of him. It's massive and he has a huge responsibility on his shoulders, not least because he's taking over from somebody who is temperamentally very different from him. And I think actually the first instinct, now he said in the past he's not going to be rabbiting on about this, that and the other and all his pet issues that, that he has been involved in up to now because he un understands the job of the monarch. But, but in a different. way, he doesn't even have to stop rabbiting but, on because we know what his stance is anyway. Yeah, but, but yes, but, but and aside from that, saying it as a monarch though, I think is different than saying it as, as Prince of Wales. But it, it was interesting to me that when he flew to Northern Ireland during the week and he met with um, Michelle O'Neill and he met uh, Geoffrey Donaldson and there was a quip made about who was the largest party and where was that going? Now, the Queen would never, ever have done anything like that. It would have been, how far did you come and how are you today? The fact that he actually even, on his first day in the gig, kind of rocked up and made any view 
whatsoever known would it would tell me that it's going to be a substantially uh, more proactive monarchy than maybe we've been used to up to now. Uh, it remains to be seen now whether that's good. You can trip yourself up doing that kind of thing as well. He's supposed to be above politics. It should be non, you know, no, no political role or constitutional role at all. But I, I would kind of say watch this space. He, he has a limited time left. He has said that himself. He's already 70 in his 70s. Mm. Um, whatever remaining time. Whatever God remaining grants, time. This, like is, is this is certainly not, we're never going to see a, a, a kind of a 70 year reign again, I, I shouldn't think. So he's got maybe 15, 20 years to make his mark and he will want to make it. My goodness, he has waited long enough and never was there a better prepared uh, person to take up the scepter and orb. Uh, well, there, there's a, a job to ask if ever you want to think about it. There, we'll leave it for just the moment. Uh, coming next on The Snight Show this evening, Ireland's energy crisis and keeping the lights on this winter and in future winters. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, an offshore floating gas storage liquid plant uh, could be needed before the end of the decade to help Ireland survive any future energy crisis. An expert report published today by the government includes the proposal as a way of guaranteeing energy supplies while also meeting targets for cutting emissions. My panel is still with me in studio, Pippa Hackett, Louise O'Reilly, Fiona Sheehan and Sinead Ryan. We're also joined now by Colette Bennett, who's Economic and Social Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Colette, thank you for coming in. Uh, Pippa, I'll start with yourself, just to give people a bit of a primer as to what exactly this report is and where is it coming from. I thought that there was an independent commission which was responsible for energy security and for managing all of this. So what's the idea about a government committing a report on this? Well, I think, you know, we're all very aware of the, the concerns around energy and certainly as we move forward in the medium to longer term about our security of energy supply and, you know, this, this report has been, it's been published today. Um, I think also, I think there's three main points um, that people have to keep in mind in relation to the report. You know, we have a situation now that we have, in, you know, as everyone knows, incredibly high prices. I mean, these three issues, secondly, um, the security of supply for this winter. And then what this report is mainly about is the security of supply more into the future. Um, they overlap in one sense, those three issues, but they are three distinct issues. And um, I think, you know, our focus at the moment is on the, the shorter term, getting us out through over this winter. But the findings in this report back up a lot of things that the government is already planning to do, already wants to commit to, um, and ultimately we're, we're, we need to secure our energy into the... So this, this support isn't about the winter to come or necessarily next winter, it's about 2025? It, it's about a longer term uh, storage. I mean, it says what it does on the tin, it's the security of energy supply. Um, and we do have, um, while we have concerns maybe in the short term, you know, AirGrid has said really it's it's only marginally you know more a, a challenge this year than it was last year. No. And, and actually, one of the issues, what 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 the issue of the problem for this year, um, in terms of supply, is that we're not getting the the energy from France from its nuclear power as we would have done last year, because we have a situation where the um, a number of the the nuclear power plants have been shut down because of climate induced drought means there's no less water in the rivers in France to cool the, the coolers in the nuclear reactors. So, we're, so we have a, an awful sort of vicious I, cycle I, 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 here. I, I thought our shortages for this winter was because uh, Airgrid and the CRU had started to go about some sort of uh, public procurement and then the contract hadn't come through. You're, you're they're slightly we, we different. We could have blackouts this year because they're sli no, the they're slightly, are low. They're slightly different issues. That That's one issue. Another issue is that the UK are exporting to France rather than to here. But Airgrid have said it's marginally, marginally um, higher risk than last year. Last year we we had a we did have a similar security 
issue and the lights didn't go out. So look, we really hope we won't be in that situation this year. But I think I think at the forefront of people's minds at home, sitting watching tonight, is, is the cost of energy this year. Uh, once upon a time, the Green Party was opposed to the development of the carb gas field. And I suspect Eamon Ryan now, as the Minister responsible for energy, is damn glad that it exists because if we didn't have it, we would be seriously up the creek without a paddle when it comes to energy supply. Does the Green Party now regret to some degree its stance against Shannon LNG, given that we could really use any kind of onshore gas development? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Right now. Um, no, I mean, Shannon LNG is a, is a commercial activity. It's, a, it's, it's not what, what has been recommended in this Security of Energy Supply Review, no, but, but, which is a state-owned... We're in circumstances now where the programme for government that was signed in 2020 doesn't really stand up to the energy crisis that we have right now. No, it but what the, no, it was a mistake because, I mean, we know if we have a, a commercial LNG plant in Shannon, which will potentially be importing fracked gas, which we have committed to in this government not to, to engage with. Um, but what the recommendations in this report are that we have a state-owned, state-managed um, onshore LNG um, that we can um, utilise from our own supplies of gas or what we have in our own system that we could maybe liquefy that. And that will only be used in the incidence of a, of a shortage of gas. Can Shannon not do that role? Shannon, it, the, the, the thesis behind Shannon is that it's a commercial entity which will not add anything extra to our, um, our, our energy supplies and we can't um, rule out that it won't include fracked gas. Where if we use our own gas supply that we right. use in our own country, it's, we know it's not fracked. Let me bring in Colette Bennett from Social Justice. Sorry, Colette, thanks for joining us in studio tonight. What do you make of the options that are laid 
played out and how much of a task does the government have in front of us? Well, as Pippa said, I mean, the immediate issue for people who are watching tonight at home is the cost of living and the cost of what it is for their pocket right now. Um, you know, we have recommended in our budget proposals that there would be an increase in core social welfare rates, for example, of €20 Euro per week to try and just match that cost of living for those on very low incomes. In terms of energy security, then, what we would like to see for people on low incomes is a an extension of the fuel allowance to 32 weeks uh, with a view to taking on the OECD proposal of extending it altogether to 52 weeks um, and actually rebranding it away from fossil fuel, away from a fuel allowance um, to more of an, an energy allowance and expanding the, the criteria in terms of availability so, so the of it. So the OECD says that there should be an allowance for every week of the year for households that are facing some sort of fuel or energy poverty. And that it be decoupled from a fuel allowance, that it be delinked from fuel altogether so that it isn't attached to fossil fuels. Um, in terms of our actual energy security, we are looking for an increase in an infrastructural budget um, in terms of our renewable energy. So we know, for example, that there needs to be more investment in relation to wind energy, particularly offshore wind energy. Um, and again, as this report came out today, um, I haven't read the entire thing, but I believe that the, the reliance on national or natural gas is a, one of those kind of longer term things and mm. in the event of a, a real emergency down the line. What we're looking at now is an emergency in people's pockets. Um, and really, there needs to be more investment in that in terms of um, energy efficiency and retrofitting. We also need to see that low-income households are prioritised. There was some really good measures brought in earlier on in the year in terms of those who are on social welfare payments. But for those who are on lower incomes and who aren't social welfare dependent, there's still that wealth transfer from those who are paying their carbon tax and are on low incomes to those who are wealthier and can afford to pay those upfront costs okay. to have their properties retrofitted. Colette is arguing for uh, more help for the lower paid, um, Louise. Uh, your party is proposing a, a sort of energy credit or a targeted energy subsidy or payment, um, which would peak at 500 euro for those that are earning under 21,000 euro a year. And anyone earning over 70,000 euro a year wouldn't get any help at all. So even 500 euro a year is less than the three energy credits the government is probably going to announce in the budget in eight days' time. How do you stand over that? Okay, so what we have proposed is that we will cap uh, the cost to consumers and that we will cap the cost at pre-energy crisis levels. So What'll this evening, it'll cost a, a, in or around 1.4 billion. That's a conservative estimate. We've actually put aside 1.7 just in case there is an increase in that because things change quickly. I was at, uh, just, just let me finish, I was at a cost to live in coalition meeting in Balbriggan this evening. We're planning um, and getting organised. There's a, a big demonstration going to be in Dublin, um, half two at the Garden of Remembrance, if you don't mind me getting that wee plug in. But I can tell you what people were saying on Saturday, sorry, I should have said, what people were saying to me this evening, and they were very clear about it, they are petrified of the winter because they are worried that they won't be able to heat their homes. They look... They know that what the price of energy was last year and they feel like they, if they could plan, if they could just have that certainty. But we're all getting the same shock when we open our bills. So the bill comes and it's twice or it's three times. And for people on a fixed income, on a low or a middle income, they are terrified that the, uh, the cost is going to accelerate at a rate that they will not be able to keep up with. And what they really want is certainty. They want to be able to plan and to say, if I keep my energy use at the same or less than it was, 
this time last year, then I can reasonably say right. what my bills are going to be. And that's what Sinn Féin wants. So certainty do. is what you want. But the thing is, I don't know whether you can be certain about what that's going to cost because you don't know what the wholesale price of, of gas or electricity is going to be for the next three or six or nine months. So you're saying, right, we're going to commit to, to cap it at a certain level. And if it goes beyond that, we'll subsidise the energy companies to make up the difference. You don't know what the difference is going to be. So how can you possibly cost it? Well, we can, we can estimate what that difference is going to be. And then we can include an extra for contingency, which is exactly what we have done. But they need people who are struggling at the moment need the certainty of knowing that their bills are not going to accelerate out of control. And remember, during the pandemic, there was a moratorium on disconnections. That's gone now. That's what people are actually worried about. They are worried that they won't be able to pay their bills and that there will be a dis that, that they will be disconnected. I had a woman in my clinic this morning and she uses um, a breathing device at night. Mm. She absolutely has to plug that in. Now, she is very worried, mm. very, very she concerned. She also absolutely needs power to supply it as she well. She does. That's uh, the point. She can't do without it. But she's on a fixed income and her bills keep going up. So if we were able to give her that certainty, if the government could give her that certainty, I think that would be very, very welcome. You just said there's no moratorium and disconnections. There is a moratorium and disconnections between the start of November and the end of March. It's been introduced by the CRU, so that already exists. Although that does, that does also mean, Sinead Ryan, isn't there the prospect that people could find themselves working up massive arrears, safe from the knowledge of disconnection over this winter, but then getting to springtime and finding themselves in all sorts of bother? Well, they could, Gavin, but like during the COVID crisis, we did one immediate step, which was unthinkable up to now, which was a mortgage moratorium. People couldn't pay the mortgages. We, the banks were instructed, told, this is what you're going to do. Everybody wants one, gets one. Stop faffing around. Don't ask questions. Just offer it and deal with it afterwards. 96% of people returned to full payments and paid it off because people wanted to do that. People wanted to pay their bills mostly. Why can't we introduce something for energy on, along those lines and say to people, look, you, you will be paying for it, okay? We're not, you can't keep shoveling money at people. We have done that. The budget next week will chase cash to some extent. It'll have to, especially if we can target it for lower income families. But why not say to people, use the energy you need. You know, if you need to, to switch the lights on, put the heating on, do it. We will sort out how we all pay for that by way of a moratorium in later time. So it might be that it's repaid over the next 12 months or 18 months. This is a crisis. Yes, it's gone on far too long. Okay. People recognise that. But, but it is also recognised that it is, to all intents and purposes, a temporary and uh, uh, rather than permanent thing. So pay for the surge so now over the next exactly, 18 or 24 exactly, months. Exactly, and let people pay it off. Because that's the kind of certainty um, that, that uh, Louise mentioned there that people are looking for. You can't give them certainty okay. of price. You simply can't do that. Uh, what you can that... do is say, we, we won't switch you off and we will find a way to let you pay it over the long term. How does that sound to you, Colette? And what do you make of the idea of universal fuel credits or energy credits, excuse me, being repeated again as they already have been? Well, we're quite disappointed in the fact that it isn't targeted. So the government are essentially going to spend 1.6 billion on universal energy credits. That will go to those on across the, the income spectrum. So very high earners, people with two homes, with holiday homes, will also get it. Earlier on in the year when this was first introduced, we heard that the government couldn't target it because there was a, a kind of a rush, there was a pressure in terms of timing. That pressure is not there at the moment. The government has had seven months to think about this and to, to deal with it. There are some very good civil servants in revenue and social welfare who would be able to identify households who would actually most benefit from this. So is it a case that, it, that the government wasn't imaginative enough and didn't decide a few months ago to get the ball rolling on this because had they decided a few months ago to start drawing up means testing, you could do it in a targeted way now. But the, well, now the government late. were asked very early on in this when the first universal credit came out um, why it wasn't a targeted measure and the, the answer given was that they didn't have enough time 
time. So they had the time to think from then until now. Um, but particularly in relation to households who are on meters, who are on credit mm. or debit meters, they are most at risk of what's called mm. self-disconnection and there is no one there to stop that from happening. So they are the ones that are most at risk and who most need to be targeted. Um, Fiona Sheen, there's a big budget coming up in eight days' time. You'd think that Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath need to be pretty much in cahoots right now. How much of an issue is it for budget preparation that they still seem to be a little bit at loggerheads over this Eurogroup job? Well, the answer to that question should be, from any minister, my focus is entirely upon the forthcoming budget and the cost of living crisis. Instead, Leo Varadkar... Thanks for seems, giving Pippa her line. For yes, me. indeed. <laughs> I mean, that, well, actually, the Greens have sensibly stayed out of this, of this uh, argument. Instead, Leo Varadkar has managed to create a partisan dispute between the, the two uh, larger parties uh, in the coalition about a quite important issue, which is our representation on, on the, the international stage and our, and our influence at, level, at that level in a post-Brexit uh, environment. So it, it very definitely is uh, poisoning the water, in effect, uh, between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and says, those who he, have to work closely together. He says together. you could have a situation where Michael McGrath is the Minister of Finance, he's at Eurogroup representing Ireland, but that Pascal Donoghue, as a non-member, could still be its president. You yeah, he hasn't, two asked, Irish voices he hasn't asked Michael McGrath that, though, has he? No. So where's he said? He have to. Well, does he have to ask Michael McGrath, Pascal Donoghue, could I, I, run for I election? I think he, he should actually, he's part of a coalition. He'll soon be the leader of that coalition. Uh, he's supposed to actually show respect to people who sit around the table with them and consult with them rather than going off and basically expressing views hitter and titter about whatever theory comes into his head. He was comparing Pascal Donoghue yesterday to a situation with Jean-Claude Juncker, who was basically a piece of the furniture uh, of the European Union for about a quarter of a century. Uh, his his latest uh, wheeze now seems to be, well, they can somehow carve up the Department of, of Finance between them. But what I would actually ask Michal Martin and Michael McGrath about their views on it. And you thought the transition between Elizabeth and Charles was going to be tricky. We're going to have to leave that one there. Many thanks to Colette and to Sinead. The rest of the panel is staying with me. Next, we'll ask, has binge drinking at home become normalised during the pandemic? Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, the latest survey of drinking habits here has found that binge drinking is on the rise. The annual Drink Aware Barometer has found that for the third year in a row, more than half of adults drink alcohol on at least a weekly basis, and one in four engages in binge drinking when they do. Binge drinking being defined as six standard drinks in one sitting. My panel of Pippa Hackett, Louise O'Reilly and Fiona Sheen are still with me. We're also now joined by Sheena Horgan, who's the CEO of Drinkaware Ireland, to talk about that latest survey. Um, Sheena, you might just talk us through the findings of your survey and how much more acute you think the problem has now become. Sure. Um, as the national charity working to prevent and reduce alcohol misuse, we do an annual survey and we've done it since about 2016, 2017. And it's about tracking and measuring the behaviours and attitudes. So it's very much seeing people where they're at and seeing what their lived experience is. So it's not even just what they're doing, it's also what they're thinking and feeling and how all of that behaviour pans out with regards to alcohol consumption. So the barometer 2022, when we look at that and compare it with 21, 20 and even 2019 pre-pandemic, you can see there's some clear trends that have become very entrenched and binge drinking is one of them. Um, it has to be said, the barometer has two key kind of cohorts of findings. One is positive and one is negative. Okay, what are so the positive ones? The positive one is with regards to people's kind of attitudes and behaviour shift to a degree. So we have about 30% of the adult drinking population would like to drink less often. And we have 35% who've already made positive changes to their drinking habits. When we also ask questions around, you know, the state 
statement. Um, I think drinking to excess is just no big deal. Three, four years ago, we would have had about 75% of the population saying, well, yeah, I agree with that statement. That has significantly dropped to 50%. So we can see from the barometer, but also even from our own engagements, like we've half a million people come onto the website on an annual basis. People are looking for information. They're looking for advice, tips, tricks. So this clearly what, what, I'm, what I'm fascinated about is how much you think that the pandemic has normalised this idea of binge drinking, particularly mm. at home, because everyone would understand that in the peak days of lockdown in 2020, you're cooped up at home, you're finding it very yep. difficult to juggle yep. the childcare and the parenting and the working, everything else you're doing, and people will have a glass or two of wine at the end of the evening. What I'm curious about is how much you think that's been entrenched now that people are no longer as cooped up at home. You seem to think that the habits have still remained. The habits absolutely have. And there's a few reasons for this. In 2019, we knew that 62% of drinking occasions were happening in the home. So that's pre-pandemic. So while I think when the pandemic hit, everybody went, well, here's a new trend. It was already an emerging trend. We'd actually committed qualitative research on at-home drinking to understand it better in January of 2020. So obviously when lockdown hit, then most of the consumption was happening in the home setting. But that behaviour two years on, we measured it last year, we measured it the year before to see where it was going. And it is still very much in evidence. When you look at Is it as why, bad or has it mitigated at all a little bit now that people are back to normal habits? Well, it, it depends. If you ask people if they've increased, if their drinking has increased in the last 12 months, the answer for 20% will be yes. But if you've already increased last year, then your increase is an increase on an increase if you see what I mean. So it's lots of those questions that we asked, we could see the behaviour is very much embedded. If you also look at the question why people are drinking, so we looked at motivations and motivations very much during the pandemic for the last two sure. years were about coping. This year, it's still about coping, but it's also social and enhancement. There's still 51% of adult drinkers saying they are drinking for coping reasons. And that clearly is also adding to that entrenched behaviour. And now, as I say, there's kind of two tranches. You've people either drinking more or drinking less. And there are many people who have, you know, adjusted their healthier, looking for healthier behaviours and adjusted their consumption, while there are those who are still struggling, dealing with the stresses that, you know, you guys have been discussing here tonight. Uh, Pippa Hackett, it doesn't portray a very happy picture because obviously if these habits have now become entrenched, but if people are drinking just to cope with the stresses of everyday life, and we all know what a lot of those stresses are now, it seems like a very difficult thing to ever get to the root of and to be able to tackle properly. No, I agree, and I think it, it you know it is concerning to to see those trends. I mean, on the other hand, it, it's 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 positive to see that more people are recognising that as a as an issue. Um, I suppose we've always had a, a difficult relationship with alcohol in Ireland, and I suppose that was recognised in the in the last government when they introduced the Public Health Alcohol Act, which really um, sought to recognise the the problems alcohol has not just for individuals and families, but for societies and the wider economy actually as a whole. And we will be familiar with. Some of those, um, some of the the aspects of that act in terms of advertising of alcohol, and we we, we don't advertise alcohol around schools or in, in, at children to children, uh, sporting events. We've seen segregated um, alcohol aisles in supermarkets, um, and even minimum pricing of alcohol has been, uh, you know, I suppose these are all attempts of deterring and changing behaviours. Um, but ultimately, you know, we do need to be cognizant of the of the difficulty that alcohol causes people in our in our society and um, you know certainly Minister uh, Frank Feehan has, has increased the budget year on year to, to deal with uh, I suppose it at the at the, the grassroots level where it is affecting um, and where we need alcohol prevention and 
uh, I suppose, addiction services in in communities. Uh, Louise O'Reilly, you were the Sinn Féin health spokesperson at the time that alcohol legislation was drafted. How exactly would you go about trying to address this problem now where so many people are coping or drinking simply just to cope and that it's become so entrenched for so many? Well, I mean, the people are under an awful lot of pressure with the the cost of living crisis and the the, the relative indifference as they see it of government. But I think if you focus on the the group that Sheena identified there, that that those those people, the thirty five, I think, percent mm-hmm. of people who want to to drink less, they're the people who need support. So our spokesperson, um, Thomas Gould, the TD from uh, Corknock Central, he actually launched our proposals there uh, last Friday. And what we're proposals talking about on, on in relation to, no, in relation addiction to sports. addiction and recovery. So what we want to focus on is a community-led approach. So when, if you are part of that 35%, the first thing you're going to look for is support. So I want to drink less. How am I going to get some support? So I have some stats here and I'm not going to read out loads of them, but the local uh, and regional drug and alcohol task forces are now actually funded at a lower level than they were in 2010. Okay, so we need to invest in our local alcohol task and and addiction task forces. That has to be done. That has to be a priority. So we were proposing at a minimum of an 11% increase in the funding that goes directly to them. So what you need to do is look at that cohort of people and then ask the question, when they're looking for help, where do they get it? At the moment, they get doors closed in their face. What they need is support. So we need to have that. And the people who are on the front line of dealing with alcohol misuse are, in my opinion and in the, the opinion of the party, the best place people to deal with how those resources should be uh, should be used. But I think we do need a community response and we need to focus on those people. Okay. So you ask yourself the question, I want to drink less. How do I go about it? Where are those supports? They're not there at the moment. Okay. And we need to ensure that just they Just before are. I bring Fiona in on that, just go back to Sheena on that, because a lot of people who I imagine are watching this this evening might actually be not only alarmed at the extent of the findings, but also that the idea that this might be the sort of problem that actually needs people to get outside almost professional help to deal with. Is the problem that acute where people do actually need the provision of of professionals to actually get over this? Well, you see, it depends. If you've 35% saying that they want to drink less, that could be somebody who is already drinking within the low-risk weekly guidelines, which aren't well known. They're not widely known at all. There's only 3% of the adult drinking population who know what low risk actually looks like in terms of consumption. So we have a broader issue of those who may be drinking within or slightly above them who would like to drink less and they need to be facilitated as well. It's very much a kind of population-wide piece. I think what we tend to do when we discuss alcohol here is we tend to talk about the ones who don't drink and the ones who are more dependent. But we actually have a massive cohort in the middle of those who are drinking within the guidelines, drinking outside of them. I mean, there's all sorts of light, moderate, hazardous, harmful. There's lots of various medical definitions. Mm. But actually, to Joe Public, the man on the street, these are the people who we are speaking to and engaging with through social media or the likes of the ploughing this weekend. And they're the people who are saying, well, actually, I'd I'd like to drink less or I'd like to cut out. How do I do that? And those kind of behavioural change pieces need information. They need support around, I suppose, empowerment, advice, tips, tricks. We have the whole adult population we should be speaking to, um, not just one cohort. And when we look at binge drinking, it is across all demographics, all age groups, particularly, unfortunately, younger adults, for sure. But it is across the full country. Uh, Fiona, the response of successive governments always seems to be if there's a problem with alcohol abuse that you simply just make it dearer. Yeah, and um, that's why this particular survey was interesting in that regard, that the minimum unit alcohol pricing came in the past year. I wasn't seeing a whole lot of evidence in the, the survey results today that this was having a massive impact. Mm. So it does set you back 
into the opposite direction, which is do you actually need to put greater levels of funding in on the on the treatment side rather than just seeing this as being like a bag of cigarettes. That or you, even you use the, the revenues price. from minimum pricing to fund those services because right now it's not actually di directed to anything. It's just going to retailers' pockets, isn't no, it? No, it's not a hypothecated tax. All, it, quite con conscientious, I suppose, as well. And the timing of it, uh, people were linking it to the increase, partially the increase in, in inflation for this year as well. So I suppose the, the disappointment from the alcohol policy perspective will be that you now have got... The alcohol is cordoned off in your shop in your supermarket. You've, you've jacked up the price. You've taken the steps that you've been advised to take from a policy perspective, and yet it doesn't seem to be having any impact. Um, Shane, just on that final note before we do have to wrap up, this idea that actually that the, the minimum unit pricing doesn't actually yield any revenue for anyone to pursue any services, is that something that really ought to be reconsidered that instead of maybe having a minimum unit price, you would convert it into a tax of sorts and then use that money for service? I think, to be honest, I mean, for, from our point of view, we'd see it that minimum unit pricing is one of a series, one of a, in a suite of measures. The environmental and legislative measures within the Public Health Alcohol Act are evidential-based and absolutely are progress with regards to reducing alcohol misuse and harm. But we also need to take that more broader collective piece and we need to look at greater information, education and awareness, as well as the legislative measures that are there. Okay. Um, how likely are, what would be the one thing that you'd like to see in the budget next week if there was a silver bullet that you could put forward? Oh God, yeah, a public information campaign. Just a okay. broad scale public information campaign so people have the facts. Okay, Sheena Horgan, CEO of drinkaware.ie. Thanks for joining us this evening. Also, Fiona Sheen of independent.ie, Louise O'Reilly of Sinn Féin and Senator Pippa Hackett of the Green Party. That is all that we have for you tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere you get your audio. You can also now find us on Instagram. Our username is tonightvmtv, which is where you'll find all the updates on everything that's on the programme and ways to watch back our previous content as well. That is all we have for you this evening. I'm back again next night, next tomorrow night, next night, tomorrow night indeed at 10 o'clock. Our next news here on Virgin Media One is in Ireland AM at 7 o'clock. From all the late team here, good night. Thanks for watching and do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 